there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The call to simplicity. I would like to know how many of you feel that your life is complicated. Well, about 15 of you think that. Um, my question would be, why? Why is it so complicated? You have too much to do, too many choices, too many things, too many possessions. I do believe that in every generation it is possible to answer God's call to simplicity. But we have to truthfully decide how much is enough. How much is enough? I read a very interesting article in the Boston Globe not very long ago by a secular author who was asking exactly that question. And she was recommending that we cut back on everything. And she was asking the question, among other things, what do you give to a person who has everything? And her answer was, how about nothing? <laughs> and I applaud that. I am absolutely in that position. I have everything. I can't even imagine wanting anything that the Lord hasn't already given me. And so I'm always telling people, give me nothing except your prayers. But we do need truthfully to decide how much is enough in every area of our lives, spiritual, emotional, physical, financial, material, and time-wise. What is enough? Now, you probably had to ask yourself that question sometime during this past week as you were pondering what you were going to bring to this conference. <laughs> now, how many of you have already discovered that you brought too many things? Well, six people found that out, too. <laughs> well, I brought too many things. I, I'm pretty good at packing. I have quite a bit of practice at it. And the older I get and the more I travel, the less I carry along with me. My husband and I like to travel real light. And so I brought what I thought was exactly right for Florida, and I find out that it's freezing down here. <laughs> So I have a couple of things in there that aren't going to be any use to me. And of course, we, there's no way we can always predict things like that, but it just blows our minds, Lars and me, when we travel, especially when it's a big conference in a big city hotel, and the women are coming in on Friday night, and they're staying over until Saturday afternoon, and the entire lobby is completely jammed with huge suitcases. And I think, what in the world have they got in them? Plus the garment bag, plus the duffel bag, plus a huge purse, and a large tote bag stuffed with things. It just, it's incredible. Lars and I went to Europe one time for seven weeks. I had Speaking in England, which meant platform clothes for freezing cold weather in the middle of summer, 
as well as hot weather and grubby clothes and casual clothes and everything else because we were going from England to Lars's hometown in Norway. So we had to have just about every kind of clothes that we own. And we had two suitcases for seven weeks, and they were not huge. And usually we travel with one small suitcase between us for a number of days. Well, I'm not telling you you have to do it my way, but I'm simply saying that the question does arise, doesn't it, again and again, how much is enough? I always tease my friend Norma Day of Atlanta. She's a beautiful woman. She used to be a model. She's been in the makeup business, and she and I have great time together. She has a real Georgia accent, and she can imitate my Northeast accent, and I imitate hers, and so we sort of switch roles sometimes. But just recently, I saw Norma, and we were, I was ribbing her again about her gorgeous wardrobe, which is just vast. And uh, I said, and how many suitcases do you take when you and your husband go for a weekend? And she wouldn't tell me how many, but... Uh, she said, but Lisbeth, she always called me Lisbeth, that's two syllables, you know, in Georgia. She said, I like to have a choice. And I said, well, I like to have a choice too, but I make my choices before I leave the house. And since I'm telling you a little bit about Norma, many years ago, Norma decided to redo everything about me. She went through my wardrobe. This was at my request. I said, I'll take your advice. And so she went through my closet. She took out just about everything. We can get rid of this. We can get rid of that. You know, and there wasn't much left. And then she started telling me everything that I was doing wrong about my makeup, which was everything. And uh, I thought we were finished. I was just completely demolished by this time. And then when... I thought it was all over. She said, now, Lisbeth, what are we going to do about your hair? <laughs> oh, dear. I said, what would you like to do about it? Well, number one, color it, of course. And I read in my Bible that gray hair is a crown of old age, so I'm going to keep that crown. I'm not going to color my hair, but she wanted to do all sorts of other things and make it style and everything, and I just drew the line at that. And uh, I love Norma, and she loves me. So anyway, but ask yourself about your closets. Are your closets, how much is enough? Do you have plenty of room? Is there a lot of nice open space in the closet so that you can easily pull things in and out? How about the floor of that closet? We know a lady who has a walk-in closet that you can't walk into. Literally, the entire floor was completely full, and the last time I was there, the cat was having kittens on top of the clothes that were on the floor of the closet. How about those drawers? How about your top dresser drawer? Do you clean, how often do you clean that out? Um, do you have old makeup in there that you're not using and whatnot? What about the glove compartment in your car? What about those kitchen drawers? Those twistums? How many of those do you save? <laughs> Those plastic bags, those jars that have no lids and those lids that have no jars. Those Tupperwares, you've lost the lid or you put it on the top of the stove and it's gone. And to me, the most painful thing is to get rid of my books. I have X number of shelves and only X number of shelves. I don't have any extra space and books keep coming in and coming in, which means that books have to keep going out because I cannot stand to put books across the top of other books this way. And if you have them in boxes somewhere, you might as well not have them. 
Now, to me, all this is very funny, and it rings a lot of bells with all of us, but it's a very serious matter for me because I don't have very many years left in my life, and Jim Elliott wrote something that I've never been able to get out of my mind, and as a young man, it was rather surprising that he would be thinking this way, but he said, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. <laughs> and I think he did a very good job of that. He didn't leave very much behind. And I want my life to be simple for Jesus' sake. I believe that the key to simplicity is single-heartedness. The psalmist said, One thing have I desired of thee, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. You remember what Jesus said to Martha when Martha was so worried and anxious and, as we would say nowadays, stressed out about that meal that she was putting on for Jesus. He said, Mary has chosen that the good part, the one thing that cannot be taken away. And then the Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So simplicity is single-heartedness, which is, and I will give you three things, number one, a simple matter of focus. There's a beautiful story in 1 Kings 17. Elijah the Tishpite had been sent to the ravine called Kareth, and God had said to him, you will drink from the brook. God said, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine. You will drink from the brook. I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. And verse 5 begins with three very simple little words, so he did. Elijah was a prophet of God. His focus was on God. And so what God told him to do, he did. He did what the Lord had told him. No ifs, ands, or buts. What am I going to eat there if the ravens are going to feed me? What if the brook dries up because there was going to be a drought? He just did what the Lord told him. He went there east of the Jordan and stayed there, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And sometime later, the brook did dry up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Now, it's strange enough for God to command the ravens to feed him in Kareth, but now he says, I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. It's hard for us to imagine how destitute a widow was in those days. She had no resources at all. So here was the prophet who was asked to go to a place where there weren't going to be very many resources. Again, no questions asked, no speculations as to what might happen, which is our natural tendency, isn't it? Whenever God tells us to do something, we can think of six reasons why it's not going to work. Verse 10, 
Three simple words, so he went. So he did, so he went. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink, as she was going to get it. He called and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Sounds as though he was asking quite a bit of a widow, but he didn't realize how much he was asking. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So here's Elijah now speaking, as it were, to this woman in the voice of God. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Now talk about an unreasonable request. She had nothing but a handful of flour and a little bit of oil in a jar just enough to make one little cake of bread for her and her son, which would be their last meal. And here's the prophet making an impossible demand. Make me a cake first and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. And you don't hear a word out of the widow saying, how am I supposed to do that? Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. Because, of course, the prophet had given her an incredible promise, which would be very hard for any of us to believe. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So there was food. She went away and did as Elijah said. There was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Apparently there was more than just that one son. For the jar of flour was not used up. The jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. The Lord keeps his word. And he promises that when we obey him, he takes responsibility for the consequences. It is a simple matter of focus. Last night we talked about the God who made that supergiant called Antares. And if you just think of that one fact of the creative work of God, wouldn't it be sufficient to persuade you that he can manage your, li your life, that he is not worried about anything? There isn't anything in the whole world that worries God because he knows what he's going to do. He knows the answers. He knows the outcome. Focus your life on God. Have you truthfully decided how much is enough? It seems to me that if we really believe the promise, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory, then we would know that what we have is enough. We don't need to be going out looking for something else. What we have right now is enough. If we think we need something else, it's reasonable and it's right and proper that we should pray because we read in Philippians 4 that we are to make our requests known to God. And then we, th we are to thank him. The peace of God will keep our hearts and minds. 
prayer, thanksgiving, and the result is peace. But if we don't have that thing today, it's because God knows we don't need it today. And if we need it by next week, we'll have it by next week. If we need it tomorrow, we'll have it by tomorrow. But if we don't have it now, we don't need it today. And that, to me, simplifies my life. It greatly simplifies my life. My focus is on God. He is my Lord. He is in charge of my life. I am his property. And so my life is just much simpler than it used to be. And I confess that it has taken me far too many years to understand simplicity and single-heartedness. And I also want you to know I haven't arrived. I need your prayers. That the Lord will make me more simple, more single-hearted, day by day. The second thing that, single, that, that simplicity is, is a simple matter of obedience. A simple matter of obedience. Now we've already seen that reflected in the story of Elijah and the widow. God told him to go to the ravine, he went to the ravine. God told him to get up and go to Zarephath, he went to Zarephath. God spoke to the widow of Zarephath through the prophet, and she did what he said. A simple matter of obedience without all the objections and the what-ifs and the yeah buts. And our lives get very complicated because of the what-ifs and the yeah buts. And we read the scriptures, they go right off us like water off a duck's back very often. Or if some word does actually happen to pierce our hearts and our minds with a hard demand, what is our usual response to that sort of thing? Well, I couldn't tell you how many times I've had people say, but I'm really having a hard time with that. Now, what do we mean exactly? If I were to read you the verse in, second to, in uh, Titus 2, 3, 3 to 5, that, where it says the older women are to teach the younger women to stay home, for example, that's one of the worst things that anybody can stand up and say in this day and age. It's one of the most outrageous things and you can imagine that I get some flack for having the temerity to even quote God's word on that subject. Because people will come to me, not only those who are really furious and say, what right do you have to say a thing like that to women in this day and age? But then there are the, the earnest people who really do want to do the, word of, the will of God. But they say to me, but I'm really having a hard time with that. What do you mean when you say that? I have cogitated on this, turned this thing over and over in my mind and think, what exactly do people mean when they say they're having a hard time? Is it because they really are trying to do the thing and they, don't, they can't do it? Is it because their first question may be, does this really apply to me? And that's usually the argument that I get about that passage in Titus 2, 3 to 5. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. I can't love my husband. My husband doesn't love me as Christ loved the church. My husband's not a Christian. My husband goes to church, but there's nothing else in his life that indicates that. How am I supposed to learn to love him and to submit to him? So it doesn't apply to me. That's one argument. That's one reason you're having a hard time, because you think it doesn't apply. Another, the second reason might be, well, I want to do it, but I can't. Now, is it true 
that God has given us a command that you actually do really want to fulfill it, but you can't. Well, that's not true, because God has promised to help us. There is no hindrance to our obedience except our own will. God will always give us what is necessary for obedience. He has never made a requirement. He has never given a command for which he will not provide. The grace, the strength, the time, the money, whatever is necessary to fulfill that command, God will provide it. So let's not be kidding ourselves and saying, well, I'm having a hard time because I want to, but I, but I can't. Truth is, you really don't want to. Number three, I ought to do it, but I don't want to. Now, that's probably the most honest answer. And of course we're going to have a hard time when we ought to do it. We know we ought to do it, but we don't want to. And the fourth possible reason why people say they're having a hard time is I wish God hadn't said it. Why does that verse have to be there? I love what Oswald Chambers says. He is, talk about a sledgehammer. I've been reading My Utmost for His Highest just in the last couple of years. After all these years, I never had really gone through the book. And the more I read it, the more I think, why is this book a bestseller? Why do you see it even in secular bookstores and in gift shops? The only reason I can possibly imagine is that nobody reads it. It's a nice devotional book, and it looks nice on your bedside table, but if you start reading that book, it is a sledgehammer practically every day. And now I was going to tell you something that Oswald Chambers says, and I can't remember what it was now. Isn't that a hell? <laughs> I wish God hadn't said it is what we were talking about. Well, there we go. My mind went. Um, but those are four objections to obedience, to simple obedience. Now, the life of Jesus is, of course, the most shining, radiant example of this simplicity because he was single-hearted. Oh, I know what it was that Oswald Chambers said. You were dying to know, weren't you? He said, have you, has, have you ever heard Jesus speak a hard word to you? If you have never heard Jesus speak a hard word to you, I question whether you have ever heard Jesus say anything at all. Because very often, his demands seem very hard, but they are never impossible. Not by the grace of God. With the grace of God, they are possible. Now, the life of Jesus shines with the radiant simplicity that comes from single-hearted obedience. Jesus said, I do always those things that please the Father. What a wonderful testimony. Wouldn't it be marvelous if you and I could say that? I do always those things that please the Father. That is the longing of my heart, to do always the things that please the Father, to do never the things that don't please Him. 
He said, the words that I speak to you are not my words. They are the words that my Father has given me. The works that you see me do are the works that I see my Father do. In other words, there was nothing that Jesus was claiming to be original. Everything came as a gift from his Father. We hear a lot of talk about originality and creativity, and I always sort of smile when I hear that because I think, you know, we don't originate anything at all, and we certainly don't create anything at all. When you go into the kitchen to bake a cake, you don't create the cake. All you do is make it or bake it. You, put, you didn't create the eggs or the flour or the milk or the sugar. God created all of those things. All we do is take what's given and put things together. I am not a creative person in any sense of the word because all I do is just take what's given and try to put it together. When it comes to writing a book, there's nothing creative about anything in my books. And I often say I, I have nothing new to say, nothing innovative, nothing original. I have nothing that I haven't received. Everything that's true is old, isn't it? Nothing, that, nothing is, that's true is new. So we are merely receivers. We receive God's orders. We do what he says. A simple matter of obedience. And how that simplifies my life. Because so often when we think we have an array of choices and we don't know what to do, the truth is that there's really only one in that whole smorgasbord that is really the thing that God wants you to do. And God's going to make that plain. It's so easy for us to make our lives complicated. And I think there's a lust for the, a lust to feel that I'm a very complicated person. And my problem is a very complicated one. You don't understand. It's very complicated. You know, there's a whole lot of things behind this that you don't know anything about. Well, of course, there's nothing behind your problem that God doesn't know anything about. And God not only knows what's behind it, but he knows what is in front of it and after it. He knows what the results will be. And that's where faith comes in. But, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as very interesting and complicated and deep. When the truth is, God wants us to be simple. Let go of that lust. Simplicity comes from single-hearted obedience. The word of the Lord is simple. It is not necessarily easy. Now please make a distinction between simple and easy. When he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's simple. We know how Christ loved the church. He laid down his life. Sacrifice is what it means. Now, that's not going to be easy for any of our husbands. And let's always remember that you married a sinner and that he is stuck with a sinner too. Don't forget that part. I've written a chapter on that in my book, Let Me Be a Woman, which was my wedding present to my daughter, Valerie, on the subject of womanhood, not just the subject of marriage, but one of the things that I reminded her was that she was going to be marrying a sinner. And she must never forget that he is also married to a sinner. So it's a matter of 
simple obedience, forgetting all the complications, the deeps of my soul. And God knows how deep or how shallow we really are. We don't need to put on any kind of a front, make other people think that we're deeper than we really are, or that our problems are more complicated. Now, just one little simple illustration of this unwillingness to take God's clear and simple word. My son-in-law is a pastor in California, and he received a phone call from a man from another church who said, I need to talk to you about a problem. So my son-in-law made the appointment, and he came, and within five minutes, Walt knew what the problem was. It was very obvious. But the man wanted to pour out the whole long story in gory detail, and it was a matter of his having fallen in love with somebody else's wife. And he himself had a wife, so when he finally finished the story, Walt just sat there for a minute and said, finally said, is that all? And the man said, well, yeah. I mean, isn't that enough? Walt said, but didn't you tell me on the phone you had a problem? He said, yeah. Well, Walt said, what's the problem? You know what you're supposed to do. You didn't have to come and ask a pastor, what am I supposed to do about falling in love with somebody else's wife and committing adultery? The word is unequivocal. You cannot mistake what God means by that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Cut it out. What else can I tell you? <laughs> but you know, it would be, be much more interesting and perhaps much more comfortable to work through your feelings for the next six years until you get tired of that woman and find somebody else and talk to 39 counselors and pay out a lot of money perhaps for somebody to finally tell you the simple truth that's right there in this book that any of us can know. And you know, I really do believe that there are billions of dollars wasted on counseling by Christians. Now, the world, of course, is at loose ends. They don't have an anchor. They don't have a straight edge. They don't know what God has said. So they have to go find out what 25 other people say. They have to go and find a guru in some mountain in India to tell them what to do. I love the passage in, uh, I think it's Second Chronicles, where the word is, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. That's the key, isn't it? There are certainly times we don't know what to do. And God doesn't always give us an instant answer. He wants us to focus. It's a simple matter of focus and a simple matter of obedience. Now, if you are perplexed right now, and I suppose there are many here today who are very perplexed about something, some problem, some decision that's coming up, um, a new house, a new job, another child, uh, whatever, money, you don't know what to do, and that's an honest statement. You do not know what to do, and the Bible doesn't tell you exactly what house you're supposed to buy or what husband you're supposed to marry. I couldn't find the name Lars anywhere in the Bible when I was 
looking for God's guidance about whether or not to marry this man who was closing in for the kill. <laughs> so what do you do? Nothing. You do nothing except keep your eyes on him. Wait. Be still and know that I am God. Wait on the Lord and he shall strengthen thine heart. Blessed is the man that waiteth for thee. Psalm 37, verses 1 to 7, a wonderful passage on waiting on God. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And I think that's in Second Chronicles 20, if you want to look it up. I'm not quite sure, but I think that's where it is. Now here's an example of this simple matter of obedience. This radiant, shining simplicity of the life of Jesus Luke 13, 31 to 33. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. That sounds dangerous enough, doesn't it? King was out to get him. Now Jesus could have spent, if he were you or I, he could have spent days and nights of agony, worrying, stewing, changing his plans, he was already on his way to Jerusalem, and he could have said, oh, well, I must have made a mistake and all of this. But it was a simple matter of obedience that he go to Jerusalem. And so when the word comes, Herod wants to kill you, he replied, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. I just love that. Not the slightest change of plans. This is the direction in which God had led him. The fearful word, Herod's out to kill you, didn't in the slightest particular cause him to change his plans. He said, I'll drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. And some of you who are facing dreadful things, perhaps you have a husband who is dying of cancer, perhaps you yourself have cancer, there are probably several people here who do, and you're thinking of the un unthinkable possibilities of tomorrow. I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. But the grace is given, ladies, for today. Always sufficient for today. My grace is all you need, God says. And he says grace will be given to help in time of need. You don't need tomorrow's grace today. You don't need next Wednesday's grace on this Saturday. But you do need this Saturday's grace, this Saturday, and it's there. It is always there. And I can testify. I know what it's like when my second husband was dying of cancer. I would lie awake at night thinking of these hideous mutilations that the doctors were talking about. They were talking about removing his lower jaw. He had two different kinds of cancer. Now, I had seen a man in the hospital when my husband went for his x-ray treatments whose lower jaw had been removed. It's one of the worst sights I've ever seen. So I would lie in bed imagining my husband having that done to him. He had another kind of cancer, which made the doctor say they were going to castrate him. 
So I had to think of all these possibilities. Well, you know, n- neither one of them happened. My husband died. But all, those, all that worrying, I was usurping the troubles of tomorrow. Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto, unto the day is the evil thereof. You have enough troubles today. And if some of you are like me and you feel as if you don't have any troubles at all today, I, I really am so amazed at the problems that people write to me about for my radio program. I feel as if I've never had a problem in my life. But some of you have. So remember to simplify your life by focusing on God, by doing the thing God wants you to do today. He is not asking you to do something about that thing you're fearing in the future, today, very possibly. He's not asking you to do anything specific about that. He is asking you to do what he's asking you to do today. And right at this moment, I suppose, he's asking you to listen and maybe to take a few notes. And when you get home, tonight or whenever, You know what you have to do when you get home, and you simply do those things one thing at a time. And the third thing, simplicity is a simple matter of self-abandonment. Now we've seen all of these things in the life of Jesus. The single-heartedness, the focus on his Father, his unwavering obedience. We would have wavered if we were on our way somewhere where somebody was going to kill us. He didn't waver. He simply did what he had to do. The job that God had given him to do, cast out the demons, heal the sick, whatever the Father showed him at a given moment, that's what he was going to do. But he was headed for Jerusalem. And number three, this simple matter of self-abandonment means, in one word, sacrifice. And Jesus demonstrates that his whole life was a sacrifice. And I would like you to think primarily of the word sacrifice, not in the sense of deprivation and loss and destruction, but in terms of an offering. A sacrifice is an offering. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is an act of spiritual worship. So if I offer to God not only this body, but everything that this body entails, everything that this body contains, my mind, my emotions, my temperament, my fears, and everything else, if I make that a sacrifice, an offering to God, another word is oblation, just an offering to God, my life will be so much simpler. And just to give you one little parenthesis in here, and we could spend several hours talking about this, but forgiveness is a sacrifice, isn't it? When you have to offer forgiveness to somebody else, you are letting go of your right to an apology. You are letting go of your right to be right. You are letting go of the possible pleasure that you might have if that person came to you and said you were right. 
And I was wrong. You are letting go of the entire thing, the hurt, the consequences, and everything else. It is self-abandonment. That's the thing that simplifies our lives. If you suddenly see all sorts of options of things that you would love to do, and you say, well, I'd love to do this, and I'd love to do that, how am I going to get all these things done? Just quietly and quickly and simply give up the whole array of options and just say, now, Lord, you show me which one you want me to do. Which one will best glorify you? How many of you know this little daily devotional book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs? It's not very well known now because it was written about 100 years ago, but it is still in print. And this morning's passage, as I was reading it just before I came over here, I thought this fits into exactly to what I want to say. It starts with Galatians 6, 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then a poem, Is thy cruise of comfort wasting? Obviously, she was thinking of the cruise of oil, that jar of oil that the widow of Zarephath had. Is it running out? Is thy cruise of comfort wasting? Rise and share it with another. And through all the years of famine, it shall serve thee and thy brother. Through the famine, the widow of Zarephath's family was fed, as also was the prophet. Is thy burden hard and heavy? Do thy steps drag heavily? Help to bear thy brother's burden. God will bear both it and thee. And then this little passage by George S. Merriam. However perplexed you may at any hour become about some question, one refuge and resource is always at hand. You can do something for someone besides yourself. When your own burden is heaviest, you can always lighten a little some other burden. At the time when you cannot see God, there is still open to you this sacred possibility to show God, to demonstrate. For it is the love and kindness of human hearts through which the divine reality comes home to men, whether they name it or not. Let this thought then stay with you. There may be times when you cannot find help, but there is no time when you cannot give help. There may be times when you cannot find help, but there is no time when you cannot give help. The widow of Zarephath had found no help, but she was prepared to give it. And Jesus was not preoccupied with how to find help. He was dedicated to one purpose only, the will of the Father, which was to help other people. So we have three things under the heading of simplicity. A simple matter of focus, a simple matter of obedience, and a simple matter of sacrifice. If you will let go, give up, give in, give over in that most perplexing and difficult situation in your life, you will find that the result of sacrifice is always joy. There's a verse in Chronicles that says, When the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for the simplicity which is in Christ. Thank you for that radiant example that Jesus set for us when he walked this earth. Lord, we do desire to focus on you, to do what you say, and to offer ourselves in glad and humble obedience day by day. Deliver us, we pray, from preoccupation with ourselves, with our own problems, our own needs, and make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, help us to sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.